Hey, good day to you. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast. As we record this, it is Tuesday morning. NFL Week 14 has concluded in grand style. Thank you to the Ravens and Browns. What a what a great game that was. We are 10 days away from Christmas. We have 16 days left in this godforsaken year called 2020. The snow is falling. Things are looking up. And the Buffalo Bills are 10-3. and three. Yeah, the Buffalo Bills are 10-3. and three. And they might be as good as any team not named the Kansas City Chiefs in the NFL. Sunday night, and it's funny, there's so many parts of 2020 that you think about and you think, imagine if this wasn't 2020. Well, as the the Bills were playing the Chiefs on Sunday night, I could not help to think what that stadium, what, and I'm not calling it Bills Stadium, I'm sorry. The Pagulas threw that up there and it's just stupid. I'm going to call it Ralph Wilson Stadium. Ralph Wilson Stadium would have been rocking. And that's not even giving it its proper due. The camper lot would have been full by Thursday. People would have been partying in that lot since 8 o'clock in the morning. And by the time that game kicked off after 8 o'clock at night, the crowd would have been ridiculous. Bills fans who have waited 25 years to have a team like this and now they're forced to watch them the way we all do on TV. And it's just, it's not even as if now you can go to a bar with a group of your friends and watch the games there because so many bars and restaurants are closed because of the orange yellow zone and all the restrictions that go on. It, it's, it's so penal to the fans of Buffalo for the fact that they finally get their team and they're not able to enjoy it the way they've enjoyed it their entire lives. And I just, as I watched the Steeler-Bills game, I kept thinking, imagine what this place would be. And Chris Collinsworth and Mike Tirico continued to refer to that as the night goes on. Bills Mafia cer- certainly has a reputation throughout the NFL. But Bills fans have supported this disastrous franchise for years. They now get the reward, and, and they don't get to enjoy it the way they always have. So uh, a huge win for the Bills over the Steelers, obviously. And and this was one that if you watch the game, first half, the Steelers blitz was not getting home per se. They weren't really sacking Allen, but they were hitting him and they were confusing him. And whatever adjustments, whatever discussions Brian Dable and Josh Allen had at halftime, things changed. And actually, to me, the game changed just before halftime. Ben Roethlisberger is a Hall of Fame quarterback, first ballot, no doubt. He might not have been a very good person early in his career. And frankly, if the allegations had happened in today's climate, he probably wouldn't have gotten a chance to finish that career. But whatever, those things happened. He was allowed to play. He's a Hall of Famer, but Ben Roethlisberger isn't the same quarterback. He's still effective, but whether it be the knee that's kept him out of practice, the elbow that was surgically repaired, combination of the two, the fact that he can't throw the ball down the field. He threw the ball 37 times on Sunday, 21 completions, 187 yards, two touchdowns, two interceptions. 
doesn't have a lot of zip on the ball, doesn't get a lot of help from Deontay Johnson early, two bad drop passes right out of the shoot. And, and then Roethlisberger's going to be a problem going forward, I think, for this Steeler organization because they cannot run the ball. The Bills, I, I, I have said this last week, they're going to make the Steelers be one-dimensional. Unfortunately for the Steelers, they've made themselves one-dimensional. James Conner was back, as was Marquise Pouncey, their great center. So you expect the fact that the Bills team, who has struggled against the run all year long, they'd be able to run the ball. James Conner had 10 carries for 18 yards. 10 carries for 18 yards. It's, this is not Steeler football. The one area to me that's going to keep the Steelers from winning more than maybe one playoff game is simply that right there. Because it all comes down to Ben Roethlisberger, who can't throw the ball very deep, can't throw the ball very hard, and his receivers are not as dependable as their reputation should make them. Deontay Johnson has a very good reputation. He's a good player. Those drops can't happen. He has 14 drops through the course of this NFL season. Nobody else in the league has more than 10. There's a problem in Pittsburgh. But defensively, they're excellent. T.J. Watt, he doesn't have Bud Dupree on the other side, but he's still a beast. And you look at what the Bills did to T.J. Watt, it was Daryl Williams. Daryl Williams, the Bills' right tackle, was the unsung hero of this game, in my opinion. He handled Watt pretty much one-on-one. And look, TJ got pressure. He had a couple quarterback hits. You're not going to shut a great player like that out, but you can slow him down. And if you do that, you have a chance to win the game. And I thought that was huge. But the interception by Taron Johnson, the pick six, just before halftime, it was a sign of Ben Roethlisberger's weak arm at this point of his career. And it was a sign of very good defense by Taron Johnson. The ball was late. It didn't have enough zip on it. Allowed Johnson to undercut the route and break in and, and get the touchdown that got the Bills in the lead. But the adjustment that was made at halftime, Josh Allen at, at the half was 11, and 20, 11 for 24 throwing the football. He looked confused, didn't know where it was going, got his arm hit through an interception, all the things that we fear Josh Allen could be at times, this was part of it. But you look at Josh Allen's third quarter, and, and the Bills haven't been good in the third quarter all year. But Josh came out and went 10 for 10 to start the third quarter, led two touchdown drives, and this baby was over. The Bills didn't get up on the Steelers and then let them back in. They kept their foot to the, to the, on the pedal and just kept going. And it was, it was great to see. They finished a really good team. The Bills are 10 and three in large part because Josh Allen has had an MVP worthy season. Now I said it that way. MVP worthy season. He's not the MVP in my opinion. He's a top five MVP candidate. But I find it amazing that even through all the things we've seen, he, he had the great game against San Francisco. He's been the NFL Player of the Week, Offensive Player of the Week, three times this year. He had a great first four-game stretch. His season numbers now 
68.6% completion, 3,641 yards, 28 touchdowns, nine picks, 103.3 quarterback rating. Now, Josh Allen, when he came into the league, was viewed one way, as a project who would never get it done. So many people had that narrative. And people are sticking to it. One guy, and it's a guy I like, it's Nick Wright of First Things First on Fox, who just won't get over Josh Allen. And, you know, as I was preparing for the show, I found this clip, and and one guy who I've always enjoyed, you know, Mel Kuyper's controversial to an extent, but he's always provided us information. And without Mel Kuyper, I don't think the draft would be the event it is. I really don't. And, and if you don't like the draft, well, that's fine. You don't have to enjoy it. But Mel Kuyper took something and showed an interest in it and, and became a voice on TV that we all who enjoy the draft started paying attention more to. Mel Kuyper has a message for anybody who's still doubting Josh Allen. Take a listen. So what I want to do is a big picture conversation of if we were to redraft that class, who do you think would go number one? But let's start, Mel, because I saw in your notes and you and I were talking, you have been on the Josh Allen bandwagon since before that draft took place. What did you see? Defending Josh Allen seems like I've been doing it since day one. Even going back to Wyoming days, people were looking at completion percentage, looking like that's the defining part of the evaluation, his completion percentage. That's lazy scouting. It goes beyond that. If you want to be lazy, fine. There's a lot of lazy people. Okay, fine. Be lazy. Bottom line is there was more than that. Dig into it. Dig 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 into Josh Allen. Let me tell you what happened. Let me tell you what happened with me, guys. What happened with me was late this season, late that year when he lost his center, his running back, his tight end, and his wide receiver, all moved on into the NFL. Three of those guys still in the NFL, by the way, coming out of Wyoming. But that year, without those guys, he had them winning. He had a shoulder injury. He missed two games against bad opponents that they should have won big. He wasn't playing. They lost both of those games when Josh Allen didn't play. He didn't have to come back. He had a shoulder injury. I was talking to guys in Wyoming. Is he going to play? What's he gonna... I don't know. We don't know. He's not... Craig Bowles, the head coach, right? He comes back for the bowl game. He didn't have to. You see all these opt-outs, these guys quitting on their teams? Josh didn't quit on his team. He came back with a shoulder injury to play in that bowl game. They won that game in a rout. And he didn't need to play in that game. Did not need to play in that game. Then you think about Josh Allen. Hey, who did I compare him to, Grady? So I didn't compare him to Ben Roethlisberger or Cam Newton. I compared him to Randy Johnson, the wild thing. Randy Johnson had 144 walks in 1992 with a 12 and 14 record and a 377 ERA. Three years later, he's 18 and 2 with a 248 ERA, and he's got 65 walks. 144 walks down to 65. Why? Because they have coach before their name. These guys aren't finished products. They go into the NFL, and there's coach whoever, coach whoever. There's a coach before your name because you're getting paid to be a coach and get these guys to improve and be better. I don't even remember the question, but I love the answer. So that's outstanding. As good a rant as you'll ever see. And it is, frankly, lazy, lazy scouting. And, you know, I used to argue with people when I had my radio show on air, off air, and they talk about Allen's completion percentage. And you look at completion percentage is a statistic based on two things happening. Me throwing the ball, you catching the ball. Doesn't factor in the, 
the drops. It doesn't factor in you running the wrong route, all the things that go along with it. Josh Allen was inaccurate early in his career and at times still is. But the kid has worked very hard on his mechanics. They've changed greatly. He's got the ability because of that just lightning bolt of an arm to get the ball to anybody at any any time. And his decision-making has improved. And we saw it in this game. And this is where, to me, if you are still standing on the hill that Josh Allen will never be a good NFL quarterback, I don't know how good he's going to be, but he's already a good NFL quarterback. Now, Carson Wentz was a real good NFL quarterback a couple of years ago, too, and he just got benched. So it's continuing to build, continuing to improve. I, I like the makeup of Josh Allen in that respect where he will continue to evolve. And, you know, Kurt Warner has, has come out and said any of these young quarterbacks, the real growth is between the years. The more they grow as a mental quarterback, the better their careers are going to be. And I really thought that's where Allen showed something from half one to half two on Sunday night. The game seemed to slow down in one game. And I, I, it's just, it was astonishing to me to watch Josh Allen make that progress in, from one half to the next. And again, there are a lot of factors. They, they found something with Stefan Diggs and started feeding Diggs the ball and the momentum came with it. There was injuries, of course, that happened, but TJ Watt wasn't able to get home as much in the second half. I just thought that the Bills' D offense from first half to second half, that leap and the leap that Josh Allen made showed something that even though this team's 10-3 and three and we pretty much assume they're a playoff team, we haven't seen this yet. We haven't seen that. I'll, I'll, I'll give It's a golf analogy. You go out to play golf, and I don't care if you shoot 120 or if you shoot 73. Your game is what it is. But you go out and you start, and things aren't working. Do you have the ability to correct your game in a round to get it back to where you play to your normal level as opposed to ballooning? And, and that's what I thought Josh Allen and, and Brian Dable were able to do within the confines of this game. And I thought that was another huge step growth-wise because, again, the Bills had a tendency sometimes offensively to just get on that hamster wheel and spin and nothing works. This was different. This was a different outing. And it was a different outing against a damn good football team in the Pittsburgh Steelers. The defense of the Steelers is one of the best in the league. Minka Fitzpatrick, you heard his name a couple times, but they were able to neutralize him. T.J. Watt I've talked about a couple times. Cam Hayward, you heard the names in the first half. You didn't hear that as much in the second half, and I thought that was immensely important as this game went along. There's one other part of this game that happened, and you know the Steelers – Juju Smith-Schuster is a player who I like a lot. This is a good player. He's a good kid by all accounts. Does a lot of good things in the community. 
he never had a car until he got to Pittsburgh. He used to ride his bike back and forth to practice. Just a nice kid who didn't grow up privileged in any way, but he worked his ass off to become where he is. And he's a fun kid. But Juju's got a habit and, and got a thing that I think it's time for Mike Tomlin to pull him aside and have him stop. You can check the video out. Juju before games will go out to the opposing, well, it goes out to midfield, which is the logo, and he does a TikTok dance, as you're seeing here. You think people don't notice somebody dancing on your logo. Well, that's not necessarily correct. Look at the Bills' defense late in the game. You think that's not a result of what you just saw from Juju? You think they're not reacting to it? There was a video also with Josh Allen, who said to his teammates before they took the field, let them do the fucking dancing, we'll do the fucking work. And that's a direct shot at what Juju is doing. Again, I like this kid. I really do. I think he's a hell of a receiver. I don't know if he's a number one, but I'll take him as a number one A or number two any day. The Steelers have the ability to find receivers better than any team in the league. You look at, you know, I mentioned Deontay Johnson, Chase Claypool's there, James Washington, the kid from Oklahoma State who never really achieved the big-time status that we thought he might, but is still a solid receiver. They've got a lot here. And I, I just think that maybe it's time for Tomlin to pull Juju aside and say, nah, we're not doing that anymore. This, this has happened a couple times. The Ravens took exception to it. Clearly, the Bills took exception to it. We're getting to the point of the year where it's time to, to take football, make it business trip. No more good times. And I don't think Juju means any harm by it. I really don't. But it's not what's said. It's what's heard. And what's heard when Juju does that is, look at this guy disrespecting us. And it's just another part of the motivational process for the team that's going up against it. A couple things in this game. The Bills' time of possession, they had a great drive to close it out. 35 minutes and 15 seconds. Now, that's a couple things. That's the Bills sticking to the run game, and they featured Zach Moss to finish this game off. A week after he saw a lot of time on the bench because he couldn't hold on to the football Zach Moss was rewarded with the closeout drives, and he responded well, I might add, too. The third down efficiency. The Bills were 7-14, of and you take 50%, sure. Defensively, though, they held the Steelers to only one third down conversion in 10 attempts. I thought that was huge. So there were a lot of little things that have gone on, but the Bills get over at home on a Sunday night and a nationally broadcast game. And a lot of people see now that this is a team that I don't think is just a team that's going to be a playoff team, a team that can win in the playoffs and potentially get to the AFC championship game. I think the one team the Bills can't play with is the Kansas City Chiefs. And I think the Chiefs are the team, if they're best, it's kind of like another golf analogy. If Dustin Johnson's playing his best, like we saw at the Masters, nobody else can beat him. Nobody else's best 
is as good as Kansas City's. So I would think that the only team that the Bills can't beat in the playoffs would be the Kansas City Chiefs. And I'm not saying they're going to beat everyone else. I'm saying they can beat everyone else. They've got three games left. They are 10-3. and They now have a two-game lead over the Dolphins in the AFC East. The Patriots will not win the AFC East for the first time, I think, since uh, we invented the wheel. Uh, I think it was right around the same time. The wheel was invented, and then Belichick took over, and, yeah, that, that pretty much happened. Saturday, the Bills play at Denver, and the Broncos are a team that this game scares me a little bit. Offensively, they've got some talent. With Drew Locke, who's prone to the turnovers, he's got very good weapons around him. The offensive line has gotten better. Garrett Bowles has improved greatly. Defensively, they're solid. I just don't think this is the easy game many Bills fans think it is. And, again, you're making a trip out west. It's never easy that way. Then it's off to New England to play the Patriots. Never easy there for finishing up with the Dolphins. The Dolphins, though, they don't have it easy either. They've got the Patriots down in Miami this weekend. The Patriots need to win badly if they're going to continue their playoff streak. A Buffalo win and a Miami loss would clinch the division for the Bills. Then Miami goes to Vegas to play the Raiders before finishing up in Buffalo. I think it would be hugely important for the Bills to finish this division off before week 17, because I think it would be great to be able to rest some players, not have Josh Allen out there getting exposed, get the running backs healthy, the offensive line, guys like Mitch Morse who have been dinged, give them a week to rest, John Feliciano as well. I I just think for the health of this team playoff-wise, not having to win in week 17 would be a huge thing. So the Bills got to keep it going. Definitely got to keep the train moving. And yeah, the train, the train whistles, something that annoys the hell out of me in Buffalo. But at the same time, I get it. And I wish the fans were there to enjoy it. So Bills, great win. Keep the, keep everything going forward. And we'll see where it comes out in the wash last night. Monday Night Football. What a great game. And, you know, it's it's funny. The Internet rumors that immediately when Lamar Jackson waddled back to the locker room to get an IV. Now, Lamar's come out and said he definitely didn't take a shit. The Internet doesn't care. They said Lamar was going to take a shit. And whatever happened... It allowed Trace McSorley to get in. Unfortunately, McSorley got hurt. Lamar came back in. This game, Ravens 47, Browns 42, had just about everything. Nick Chubb is one of my favorite players to watch. He's so good. Kareem Hunt came in, did a great job. Lamar got things going. Lamar looked like Lamar last year, running the ball, throwing to tight ends, just getting things going. Lamar, they scored 47 points. He only threw it 17 times. Think about that. You know, we're in a day and age where everyone thinks you got to throw the football all the time. Ravens didn't do that. Baker Mayfield is a lightning rod, obviously. But, you know, here's a kid, in my opinion, last night, 
he did all he, he had to do. He brought the Browns back late with touchdowns, threw for 340. He did throw a pick, but he did everything he could to help his team win the game. That game was tremendous, and it was a big game because if the Browns hang on and win it, it, they are now only a game behind the Steelers. The Ravens now are tied with the Browns at 9-4, and four, and they're both two games behind the Steelers. Steelers, very good shape in the Central, but I think the Browns and Ravens both in good shape in the wild card hunt as well. So, you know, you start to look at what's going on with the, with the wild card and with the way things are going. You look at it, you've got – the Bills at 10 and 3 looks like they're going to get the East. Steelers, like I said, the North. Titans and Colts both tied at 9 and 4. So I think you've got a division winner and a wild card there. And Kansas City at 12 and 1, certainly division winner there. That means there's two other teams between the Ravens, the Dolphins, and the Browns. And that's where, and I'm sorry, the Ravens are now 8 and 5. So they're really up against it. It's going to be tough to see the Raiders at seven and six come back. I, I just I, a couple of weeks ago I was convinced they've now fired their defensive coordinator Paul Gunther. They're replacing him with a, a guy who got sent out in Dallas last year, and I just don't see that changing things anytime soon. It's just. The Raiders, I, I don't understand. They got blown out by the Colts, 44 to 27. Colts are playing good football. The Colts are a good team. But this Raider team, they've got to figure it out. This is now another year that if they don't make the playoffs, Gruden's situation out there, this is year three. It's got to get better. And they're close. They're very close. But they needed a miracle to beat the Jets. They get blown out in Atlanta the week before that. They get blown out here by Indy. I, I don't know what's going on, but it's not good. The week 14 started last Thursday, and the Rams just put it to the Patriots. The Rams are a great team when they're multifaceted, because when that happens, and think back to those great Ram teams with Todd Gurley. When you can run the football, all of a sudden Jared Goff is going to light you up. And Cam Akers, kid from Florida State, had 171 yards the other night. He looks like the guy going forward that the Rams are going to feature. And if they do that, I think the Rams are going to be a very tough out in the NFC playoffs. Keep, keep an eye on that. The Bears are a team that is hanging around. I just cannot understand them. They played the Texans, who I almost think if I'm choosing up players – and to try to decide who's got a better roster. I think the Texans have a better roster than the Bears. Yet the Bears win 36 to 7. And one of those names that you maybe take for granted unless you have them on your fantasy football team or maybe played against them in fantasy football is David Montgomery. He had another 100-yard game on Sunday. This guy comes to work every week. Definitely a lunch pail guy gets it done. David Montgomery's been really, really good. The MVP race is a two-man race, if you listen to all the experts. It's either Mahomes or Rodgers, and rightly so 
think they've both been phenomenal this year. But I'm going to throw a third name in, and I've done this a couple times on the pod, and I, I will continue to beat the drum for this guy. Derrick Henry had another 200-yard game on Sunday. The Titans ripped up the Jags 31-10. The Jags playing out the string, hoping the Jets win a game so they're able to draft the kid from Clemson and rebuild their franchise. I, I just It's one of those things with the Jags, if they get the number one overall pick, it, it, tree in a forest, does anyone notice? I mean, they're the Jags. They're the least interesting team in the league. So why would anybody in the league offices hope for the Jags to get the number one pick? I, I don't think they do. You're going to bring in a superstar, and, and you're going to put him in a place where nobody pays attention. But the Titans, Derrick Henry, 215 yards, couple touchdowns. He's now got 1,532 yards. On the year, three games left. Titans are in a dogfight to get the South Division with Indianapolis, as I mentioned earlier. If Derrick Henry averages 156 yards a game for the last three games, he'll be a 2,000 yard back. I don't know that he can do that, but this time of year is when Derrick Henry gets better. He is a big, nasty physical runner. We all know that. This time of year, every player in the NFL is just beat up. They are sore, they're hurting, and they don't want to tackle a 260-pound guy who runs as fast as anyone on the football field. It's just not a good time. I think that Derrick Henry is going to give 2,000 yards a scare. And if he does, how is he not in the MVP conversation? Where would the Titans be without Derrick Henry? I mentioned Patrick Mahomes, the other MVP candidate. This is where Mahomes has gotten to. I, I, I didn't think Mahomes played well Sunday. He, he had three interceptions. He took a 30-yard sack. He threw for almost 400 yards. Mahomes has gotten to the point where we put him so high on that pedestal that when he doesn't play perfect – we're looking at him and, and trying to figure out ways that he can improve. And I think he can improve. Oh, by the way, Tyreek Hill, in a league full of the most freakish athletes in the world, guys who are just giant and run like deer, Tyreek Hill is so much faster than anyone else in the NFL. It's, it's just crazy. You know the guy's going to run by you. But yet, you can't play deep enough every week he runs by somebody. It's, it's just amazing. I mentioned Aaron Rodgers, another efficient, great day for Rodgers. 290 yards, three touchdowns. He had seven incompletions. You know, I mean, he's not perfect. The Packers, 31, Detroit, 24. Packers are a very good football team. I think right now they are the best team in the NFC. The NFC East, it's funny, they've been playing better the last couple weeks. The Giants were the talk of the NFL. They would go up to Seattle and get a win, but they come home against Arizona, and they lay an egg. They got beat 26-7. to Daniel Jones was sacked six times. Look, the Giants are an improving team. 
I don't think they're there yet. I don't think they're the team that's going to come out of the NFC least. I think it's the Washington football team. Their defense continues to grow. And Chase Young, the number two pick out of Ohio State, you know, it's funny. I was talking to somebody, would you rather have Chase Young or a quarterback if you were drafting? And with the uncertainty of the quarterback position when you draft it and the certainty of Chase Young, he reminds me of young Bruce Smith. And that's high, high praise because Bruce Smith is one of the greatest defensive ends in the history of the game, one of the greatest defensive players in the history of the game. Chase Young has the size and speed and the ability to wreck wreck offenses the way Bruce Smith did. I'll, I'll be intrigued to see how his career goes. But, man, this kid is, you know, you look at the defensive ends from Ohio State have come out over the last couple of years. Joey Bosa has been an all-pro. Nick Bosa was just tremendous before he tore up his knee. And now Chase Young. And I don't even think it's close if I'm evaluating who I'd choose to start a team with. It's Chase Young. I think he is a significant amount better than the Bosa boys. And those two dudes are about as good a player as you could ever hope to find. And the Mike Tomlin line from a couple weeks ago, I hope I'm never bad enough to draft somebody like you. I I don't know what Joe Burrow is going to be, but I know Chase Young is going to be year in, year out, an all-pro player. He might have been a better pick for the Bengals at number one, especially the fact that they're so awful this year. They might have a chance to draft a quarterback again. It's just crazy. The Vikings gave the Bucks all they could handle, but Tom Brady got a win. And the Bucks now, they're in good shape. But there was something about this game that was different. And I've been saying it for a while, and I'm not talking about Dan Bailey missing field goals and extra points. By the way, as of now, he hasn't been cut yet, which is astounding to me. But it's the fact that Ronald Jones had 18 carries in this game. The Bucks have a running back and an offensive line that can force the action and take the pressure off of Tom Brady. Just because Brady's a Hall of Famer and the greatest quarterback probably ever to play the game doesn't mean you need him to be great every week because you've got a very good defense. You've got Ronald Jones. Be smart about it. And I know this is where Bruce Arians is going to take some heat with people trying to figure out ways to find a divide between he and Brady because there seems to be a disconnect, though the two of them tried to play golf this week. Apparently they're very good friends off the football field. How about Jalen Hurts first start? Carson Wentz gets benched the week before. Hertz comes in, looks okay. They decide to start him, runs for 100 yards, throws for 167, and the Eagles beat the Saints. Now, the Saints, and I've said it, their defense is very good, although they got beat up on the ground on Sunday. I don't think Taysom Hill can win football games, important, meaningful playoff football games. I really think that they need Drew Brees back. Then you move Taysom Hill into that 
situation where he's able to do some things to help your team win as opposed to trying to do everything to make your team win. I just think that their team that's much better when they run the football with Alvin Kamara than they are running the football with Taysom Hill. I think Drew Brees has obviously a much better grasp of the offense. It's it's just one of those things. The more you watch, the more I think that Drew Brees is going to be an it maybe is the most important player in the NFC this playoff season. If he's back, if he's right, watch the Saints. If he's not, they could very well be a one and done. So that's the NFL. Only three more weeks of the regular season. We're now playing on Saturdays, which always happens at the end of the year. In a couple weeks, Christmas Day, we'll be having a Friday game. The NFL will have played every day of the week this year. Welcome to 2020. Nothing's as it seems. Well, it sticking with that theme, 2020, nothing's as it seems. The college football playoff. We're going to find out Sunday who's in and who's out. And I think it's pretty obvious, for the most part, who's going to be in. There's three teams, I think, that will be in. We can, I, I can confidently say right now, Alabama, who plays Florida this week, and Florida might be a team I'm talking about at the back end of this conversation, if not for a player throwing a shoe, getting an unsportsmanlike conduct. One of the dumbest plays I've ever seen. And frankly, dude who threw the shoe, what you think was going to happen? Was it not going to get flagged? Was the player not going to run after it, put the shoe back on and continue playing? Just dumb. And it costs your team a game and legitimately a potential shot at the national title. Now, they would have had to go to the SEC championship game and beat Alabama to get in. I understand that, but I think there's a chance. Alabama, win or lose, unless they get blown out by Florida, is in. I, I think there's very little debate about that. The next two are Clemson and Notre Dame. Now, the two teams played earlier this year, and Notre Dame got the win. And, and it's it's a different situation now because Clemson's going to be better. And, and forget about what they don't have on offense. Clemson's going to have the three defensive players back. So Notre Dame's undefeated. Clemson's lost the one game to Notre Dame. What I'm intrigued at is I I expect Clemson to beat Notre Dame. And and I don't think it'll be handily. I think it'll be a close game on Saturday. Notre Dame's too good. I think Kieran Williams is great running back. I don't know that he's a college running back, but he's certainly – I mean, I don't know that he's an NFL running back, but I certainly think he's a college running back that is somebody who's going to always be very good. And Notre Dame's going to give Clemson all they can handle. But I expect Clemson to win a close game. If that's the case, and assuming that's the case, then I think you look at this and you say, okay, Clemson and Notre Dame are both in. They both are one-loss teams. They'll both be 10-1. and 
I, I would safely bet that those are two of the three teams. So if that's the case, you look at this and you think, okay, we've got Clemson, we've got Notre Dame, we got Alabama. Who's fourth? Who's the fourth team? Now, many people will say, well, Ohio, Ohio State is. Ohio State's 5-0. and They play Northwestern in the Big Ten championship game. If you want to get all excited about the Big Ten this year, it's one of the worst conferences in the country because of the underachieving likes of Michigan and Michigan State and Penn State. They were all terrible this year. Indiana was far better. Maryland was better. Michigan cancels their game against Ohio State. They practice Sunday, and they're set to play Maryland this weekend. Just very strange. Has Ohio State played enough to earn that spot? And what if they struggle against Northwestern, if it's a close game? Now, if they go out and blow out Northwestern, I think they're in. Texas A&M has played in the SEC. They'll be 7-1, and one, have some nice wins. They beat Tennessee this week on the road, go to 8-1. and one. They might be in. How about Cincinnati? They're 8-0. No. They play Tulsa. How about USC? They're going to win the Pac-10 if they beat Oregon, go to 6-0. and oh. Do they get it? Remember, this is a reality show. You want eyeballs coast to coast. You've got Alabama, so you've got the South, and Clemson helps with the South. North Notre Dame helps with the Midwest. You bring USC in, you get the West covered. But Iowa State, they blow out Oklahoma this weekend. Somebody from the Big 12 maybe gets in. I, I don't know who will get in. I assume it'll be Ohio State. But if they struggle against Northwestern, this could get really interesting. The other part of it is, if Notre Dame beats Clemson, you know, Trevor Lawrence is back, you still lose, are, are, is Clemson still going to get in? I don't think they will. I think then a Texas A&M and Ohio State both get in. I don't think you take a two-loss ACC team over a one-loss SEC team. So keep an eye on that. College football is really quite interesting in this strange year because, and it's almost more interesting than normal. We always get to the point where there's one team that we maybe argue for right now. I I just made a case and not a good case, but a case for five teams getting to that last spot. And we're assuming that Clemson beats Notre Dame. And again, I think they will. And I know a lot of Notre Dame fans don't want to hear that, but, Trevor Lawrence is the best player in college football. And not only is he back, but the three best defensive players for Clemson are back. It's going to look different on Saturday than it did in South Bend. But Notre Dame's a very good football team as well. They're well coached. Ian Book's a solid quarterback. They're going to give Clemson all they can handle. Love me some college football, especially this time of year when the games are meaningful. Let's let's just hope the games get played. And, you know, that brings me to my next part of the podcast, the games getting played. Should the games be played in college basketball? Coach K of Duke had some comments last week where he felt trying to play games at this time of year is foolish. And, you know, it's one of those things, Coach K, when he speaks, people listen. He is a deity to some people in college basketball. 
he is somebody who everyone seems to look up to. So when he speaks, it carries more weight. And a lot of coaches will they'll kiss the ring. Not Nate Oates of Alabama. The former UB coach had this to say about Coach K and whether or not teams should be playing. Can I ask you something? I just want to know your opinion. Do you think if Coach K hadn't lost the two non-conference games at home, if he'd still be saying that? Probably not. Okay. That's, I just wanted you to say it, not me. So, I uh, look, here's here's my deal on it. I think we'd have a whole lot more problems if we weren't playing games. Like, they, they I mean, don't, everybody talks about COVID. Here's the other thing. If COVID is so bad, all these – I'm look, I'm trying to do my best to keep the mask up. I've already had COVID, so I don't even – I. Technically, I shouldn't have to keep it up. Nobody can get it from me. No, I'm still within the 150 days that the NCAA's recommended. I see all these other guys that haven't had it, and they're masked down the whole game. It's like they got a chin strap on. So if they're really worried about COVID, you'd think their mask would be up the whole, whole game, right? Like, I mean, they, so I think some of them are, are using uh, – uh, no, we should be playing, in my opinion. We 100% should be playing basketball. Nobody talks about the mental I, – I, there's a kid – out of Detroit and went to another high major that I just talked to his uncle the other day because his, uh, his cousin played for me in Detroit. He went to a high major school somewhere, mental health issue, came home because he was quarantined for weeks on end when he got there. Like, what are, what are these guys going to do? If I got three daughters. Like, I, they, they need to be in school. Like, humans aren't made to sit alone in isolation for weeks and weeks on end. We, we got to we got to be careful with how we do life, but you still got to do life. Part of life, a huge part of life for all these guys I'm coaching is being in the gym playing basketball. So I think their mental health is in a much better spot playing basketball. I think the school, the SEC, the NCAA has done a really good job making sure that we're not putting any of them in danger. So, I no, I don't agree with them at all. And I, you answered the question for me. So thanks. Now, Oates later apologized after many people called him out for those comments, including Jim Beheim, by the way. But I liked it better hearing that because that was real. And, you know, you look at college situation right now. Most colleges have sent the kids home. Campuses are largely empty. The athletes are about the only ones left on campus, and they're being tested regularly. It's a bubble of sorts. I haven't heard of many transmissions that have taken place through a sporting event. As a matter of fact, I haven't heard of any. You know, people play against each other. They breathe on each other, but not for extended periods of time. So is it safe? Is it unsafe? And again, we don't know enough to know the answers to these questions. What's best to do? I, for one think that playing is the right approach, getting the kids tested, keeping them on campus, keeping them healthy, as opposed to sending them back home where who knows what could potentially happen. There's certainly less discipline in the home than there is in a college situation right now with COVID. I should say COVID discipline. But it's just, there's no good answers. It's like everything else in 2020. 
there are no good answers. What do you do? I applauded Nate Oates for saying what he said. He said what he believed. And, and it was funny. I had a flashback. I had Nate Oates on my radio show a few years back. And at the time, they were a better team than Syracuse was. They were a team that was going to win NCAA tournament games. And I asked him if they were the best basketball team, college basketball team in New York State. And it was an obvious shot at what Syracuse was doing that year. And Nate Oates laughed and he said, well, you can say that, but I won't. And it, it reminded me, you know, let somebody else do your dirty work. But he knew it. He he knew it just like he knew it then. And and I do believe if Coach K was 4-0, here's the difference in what Duke is this year versus traditional. Duke and Kentucky. Duke's 2-2. Two two. They've lost two non-conference games at home. Kentucky's 1-4. These are two of the – they are not two of. They're the two biggest one-and-done factories in college basketball. While everyone looks at Kentucky and Coach Cal and says, yeah, look what this guy does, Coach K does the same thing. And don't think for a second that Duke isn't the same exact program as Kentucky when it comes to the way they recruit and the way they continue to turn – players over year after year in this season with limited practice time, no exhibitions, no off season work together as a team. All of these young kids are now learning at a later stage. So you're seeing the one and done teams, Duke and Kentucky struggle mightily because they haven't yet gelled. And it's going to take much longer for them to gel because of the uniqueness of 2020. So when coach K gets a little holier than thou and says, we shouldn't be playing. I'm with Nate Oates. If he wasn't in the situation, he is team. That's not gelled and a team that's got a long way to go. And they're about to enter ACC play. I don't think it would be the same. And you know, one and done kids can go one of two ways. They could either bring a team to a championship as Kentucky and Duke have both done, or they could do what Cole Anthony did last year and wreck a real good North Carolina program. So it depends on the kid and how much buy-in there is. In the past, Duke and Kentucky have been able to practice a lot and get a lot of buy-in from these one-and-done kids and had success. It's not the same now. It's not the same in 2020. So interesting college basketball. Syracuse, had a game over the weekend. Well, they played a half. They blew out Boston College. And I don't know what's going on at Chestnut Hill. And I don't think you could fire coaches based on 2020, even though Gus Malzahn got fired by Auburn and walked away with $21 million on the football side. I just think that judging a coach on this year with all the uniqueness of it is very difficult to do. But SU won 101 to 63. You go on the road in the ACC and win by 38. If I'm the athletic director at Boston College, I got to look at in the mirror and say, what are we doing here? We're a great college. We're in a great city. We've got a, a tradition, and yet we can't put a competitive basketball team on the floor. Something's got to change. But for Syracuse, Buddy Beheim was back. And it makes a lot of difference to me 
having Buddy back because it's another shooter. Take some of the pressure off Joe Girard, Alan Griffin, Buddy, and, and Girard, all three very good shooters. But I think the the pressure being off of Girard, being able to pass the ball first and not worry about his own, I think helps a little bit when he knows that Buddy Beheim is going to knock it down. You want to throw the pass to the guy who's going to make the shot. If you have confidence in the guy making the shot, it's a lot easier to get yourself to pass the ball. The fact, too, with Buddy back, now you've got Woody Newton and Kadari Richmond coming off the bench and providing some real spark. There's there's a lot of good things happening with this SU program. In a year where the ACC, I, I don't want to say it's down because it's deep, but you don't have that dominant team. Florida State's the class of the of the ACC this year, but you don't have a Zion Williamson-led Duke team. You don't have a great North Carolina team. I think Syracuse is going to be just fine down the road. Now, talk about 2020. Syracuse didn't have a game from Saturday till next Saturday when they play UB and wanted to find something. Yeah, they found a game. They're playing Northwestern Wednesday at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Is there anything more 2020 than a Wednesday mid-afternoon businessman special? I mean, it is just such a 2020 thing. Bayheim found a game, and I think it's good that he found a game because, again, there are a lot of kids that haven't played meaningful minutes. Woody Newton, Kadari Richmond, I mentioned. John Paul Jock is also seeing some time. And even having Marek play the five in that zone, getting more time before they get into the crooks of the ACC schedule. Because, again, a week from today, it kicks up ACC time and Syracuse plays Notre Dame, and Notre Dame's very good this year. So it's going to be a tough stretch for the Orange, but I think this is a team that's growing. I, I like the fact that Gerard was 6 of 8 from 3, and one of those misses was a late heat check 3 from about 35 that Beheim simply gave him a, okay, Joe, calm down. You know, you're on fire, but just just calm down. So going to be fun to watch how this team develops and. Frankly, I'm enjoying watching this team. And I know over the last couple of years, a lot of people locally have been frustrated by Syracuse. They're not scoring. They don't, they're not exciting. Give me a team that has three guys that can knock it down from deep, two athletic kids coming off the bench, and they can shoot it as well. Both Kadari and Woody can shoot it. I think this is a team that has real potential to grow as this season goes on. And again, who knows how healthy they'll be? Who knows what the season will do? Last year, the team seemed to be evolving. They blow out North Carolina in the ACC tournament and maybe are one one more win away from the NCAA tournament and everything got shut down. So we'll see where it goes from here, obviously. with There's no certainties, but I like the odds of this orange team being a tournament team if there is a tournament this year. Again, only 16 days left in this awful year. We're looking forward to 2021. Have a great week, everybody. We'll talk next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast.